What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey all, welcome to another episode of Represent. I'm Aisha Harris, your host, and coming up soon, we'll be bringing you a conversation I had with Morgan Rhodes, a music supervisor who's curated sounds on some of the biggest and most talked about movies and TV shows of the last few years, including Selma, Netflix's Dear White People, and one of my personal faves, Queen Sugar. In fact, that was a clip from a particularly emotional scene from season one of that show that you just heard. But first, we've got a brand new recognize in honor of Verlin's newest TV obsession. I am obsessed. <laughs> hey, Verlin. <Hello. laughs> Welcome back. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. Um, yeah, I feel like I've, every other conversation has led to Survivor's Remorse, which is the show that I definitely want to recognize here today. There have been so many conversations about black love and depictions of black love on television and what actually is genuine and you know Oprah has on the own network has the new documentary out that's legit all about black the name of it is black love yes (laughs) (laughs) Um, actually I started watching it and it's interesting because they're all like heterosexual couples have people been talking about this I've seen a little bit of chatter, but I have not really paid much attention to the doc. I'm surprised I haven't seen that think piece. Mm. But anyway, (laughs) Um, I am here today to recognize Survivor's Remorse. And the only reason I found this show is because, remember when we had Aniko on, I binged All of Power. I paid for Stars, which is the channel that both shows air on. And I was like, well, you know, I think I've heard people talk about this, something to do with LeBron James. Let me check it out. And I was presently surprised. Sheena Arnold is in it. Who I interviewed last year, actually. And that's actually how I first watched Survivor's Rumors, ah. um, was to prep for that interview. Um, she's great in that show. And my favorite character on this show is M. Chuck, played by Erica Ash. She has a potty mouth, <laughs> but she does an amazing Boston accent. People ask me why I have a Boston accent. That fucking pisses me off. Do you? I grew up in Dorchester. Sorry I didn't go to college and learn how to talk all proper like my brother Cam. I fucking raised this kid. I mean, he like, I'm me like, is this actually how black girls in Boston speak is one thing that has that come across my mind. Well, Although, first of all, last I checked, there weren't too many black girls in Boston. You're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> 
So maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Let us know, listeners. Is that how you know, watch it? Let us know if that's actually how black girls in, in Boston speak. But she is so endearing. She's one of her and Tashina Arnold, I feel like, bring the funny. Well, let's set this up a bit. Like, yes. Obviously, LeBron James is, you mentioned LeBron James, who is not an actor, but he's involved in the production. He's, I think he's like a what, executive, executive producer. producer. Yeah. Right. So what what exactly what's the premise of the show? So the premise is Cam Calloway, played by Jesse T. Usher, signs a pro basketball contract and then he moves his family from the quote unquote projects in Boston to Atlanta where he's playing like he's the lead the star on this team and he like in the beginning there's this montage that they kind of like this is the clip that's always in the like last time on Rosario Rivers and Morris it's like the people that I owe everything to is my mother Tashina Arnold my sister M. Chuck who is Erica my cousin who is Reggie Vaughn played by Ron Rico Lee <laughs> who I originally first encountered on Sister Sister way back when he played one of the twins uh, like boyfriends love, yeah, yeah. yeah and I just know him as like he pops up that in, working black actor yeah he pops <laughs> he pops up in all of those those these movies and these tv shows and also his uncle mike epps who like all four of them show up in this montage and they're the family that he moves from boston to atlanta and he's just kind of figuring out like okay he's coming to all this money how does he um give back to his family and like honor their um their roles in his life while also like you know not just giving it to them, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, my second favorite character and also a part of why the conversation around black love really endears me to Survivor's Morse even more is the relationship between Reggie and his wife, Missy, um, played by Tiona Paris, who their relationship, I think is one of the few examples of quote-unquote black love because, you know. I hate that term, by the way. (laughs) So do I. I I was, like, struggling right before we started. Like, what should we be talking about? Uh, I guess black love, but what does that even mean? Um, And also, yeah, because what is blackness? You know, this is is levels, levels. Okay. (laughs) Ari, Ari, my boyfriend, he he often, he, he, he and I make fun of it because, like, we've had people say, like, oh, just, like, and anytime we post pictures, so someone might say like, "Oh, black love," and he's like, I, "I hate when people say that." And he's like, "I feel like every time someone says it, they have to be like, black love." <laughs> gotta say like, black love. <laughs> it's like that Michelle Obama. Whenever people say black love, I think what they're really the thinking Michelle about, to the my Michelle and Barack, Barack, or like yeah. the the J to my Bay or yeah, whatever. It's like, exactly oh, okay. It's like this like we all know their problems. <laughs> so yes. Maybe not black love, maybe something else. But they have um, class different. They have a class difference. So she comes from a wealthy family. So throughout the se- throughout the series, you see that struggle and and his generational hurt and like how she like they have this conversation in a recent episode. I'm not gonna spoil it, but it was just the, one of the most realist relationship conversations like I think we like we were just saying we romanticize what it means to be in love and to be in a relationship right but what happens when shit hits the fan like what happens when literally the the there's no like there's not cheating there's not like someone lost their job there's not the things that we are tend to see couples struggle with on television is literally that you know I have this trauma <laughs> and because of this trauma, I don't know if I can love you the way that you need to be loved, right? Because <laughs> from what I can hear and what I see through, like, those people in my life, a lot of my friends now are married. Like, marriage is marriage is difficult. And to love someone, even on those uncomfortable days, is hard. 
I mean, I know you have a partner. I know y'all love each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it's not easy by any means. Yeah. Uh, and anyone who pretends otherwise, y'all lying. Mm. <laughs> or or at least you're, you're obscuring the truth. Mm. <laughs> and why? You know, and yeah. I think like that representation we don't often see on television. And it's not like, and again, I can't emphasize enough. It's like, it's not there's always these like big climactic moments that lead to whatever the thing is. And I just love how seamless it is. Um, her character is also a moment early on in the season. Literally, I just watched, I just binged four seasons of this. So everything is kind of as mixed you do. Up in, as I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but early on, she cuts her hair. She has a, you know, a perm and she cuts her hair. And there's this great moment where he's just like, <gasps> baby, what happened? Who did this to you? Did you call the police? No one did it to me. I went to the salon and I had it all cut off. And he's like, I love you anyway. And she's like crying. And I don't know if you had this moment. Did you, were you, you were always natural? No, 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 no. <clears throat> I yeah. was not. But I didn't, I didn't do the big chop either. I just like, gr- I struggled gr- for <laughs> a good year and a half not <laughs> doing a perm. Station. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I cut my hair off. And so there is that moment where you're just like, I'm not used to seeing myself like this. And you want to cry because you don't know what to do. And you've seen all the YouTube videos and your hair is not doing that. And you just don't know what, you know, you don't know what to do. You like you just made a decision. that, And you see her go through that and you see him kind of like just be like, not that corny, like, I love you anyway. He's like, oh, it will grow back or whatever he says. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's going to be okay. I love you anyway. <laughs> Um, and you know and I think I mean of course that relationship is definitely my biggest reason why I think people should watch but there's also Tashina Arnold's love interest is an Asian man which Hmm. that's a representation we don't see quite often a black woman and an Asian man Mm -hmm. it's also very funny like you know I don't want to spoil anything but something really tragic happens and even though like I was crying I was also laughing because they have like they have a really nice chemistry as a family and their little one liners to each other are hilarious so like watch it for representation of black love of well black love <laughs> in all in all hues in all mixtures <laughs> um and also to laugh your behind off and also cry i guess a little bit all right well it's definitely i feel like underrated even more than power for yeah, some reason for some reason no one is really talking about it yeah but it's been it's what four seasons in four seasons so yeah. they believe in it. oh and it's 30 minutes long Oh, I so, like that. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Because Power was hour-long episodes. Yes. That was a little hard towards the end. <laughs> this one is like it goes by so quickly. And there are like eight episodes in the first season and ten in the next. So, like, I literally, it, it's a quick watch. Okay. Well, my really quick shout-out to Black Love <laughs> on TV, uh, or at least a recent representation, is definitely the relationship between... Well, we're going to talk about it in a, in a bit as well. But Queen Sugar. Yeah. We have Hollywood, who is played by Omar Dorsey, and Aunt Vi, who is played by Tina Lifford. Oh and their relationship, just like she's slightly older than he is. Ugh. But, and like, it's just everything about their relationship, their chemistry, even when they're having rough times, is like, it's just not even just black love goals. Oh it's just goals. Like, go- but like there was a scene in the first um, season between them when shit hit the fan. 
mm-hmm. that literally I was crying for like a good 10 minutes after it went off. Like <laughs> You cry a lot, don't you? I do cry a lot. <laughs> I'm heartless. <laughs> I finished This Is Us and I like didn't cry once. <laughs> but <laughs> that's a whole nother story for another day. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh but anyway, everyone should check out obviously Queen Sugar, but also Survivor's Remorse. And thank you, Verilyn, for recognizing this show for us. Thank you, Aisha, for letting me get that out. <laughs> well, I had to after how many weeks of you saying, I want to talk about some Remorse. So next week? So next week. <laughs> <laughs> so up next, we have my interview with Morgan Rhodes, the woman who shaped the sounds of some great TV and films as of late, including Dear White People and an array of Ava DuVernay projects. Earlier this summer during our chat, Morgan broke down what it means to be a music supervisor in Hollywood, the process of finding just the right musical cues for scenes in Selma, and her current musical obsessions. Check it out. All right. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, You're out in L.A. We're here in Brooklyn. But it's great to have you on, Morgan. Thanks for coming on Represent today. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Also, I love your voice. Can I just say that? (laughs) Thank you. You have such like a smooth, lovely radio voice, which makes sense because you work in radio, you work in in sound and, and in audio. So it's I just wanted to compliment on your voice. I hope that's not too uh, <laughs> weird. <laughs> no, it's lovely. Thank you. Great. Well, first I wanted to ask you, can you, just for the listeners, because we've we've had a lot of people on the show in the past, and you know, a lot of them do things that I think we all have an idea of what exactly they do, whether it's a director or an actor or, you know, a writer. But a music supervisor, I think maybe more people might not be aware of what exactly a music supervisor does. So could you talk a little bit about like what that means for you when you're working on a movie or TV show? Sure. A music supervisor's uh, primary responsibility is, uh, in sort of esoteric terms, it's to help uh, carry the story be that in uh, a television show, uh, a film, uh, trailers, and even now games. Mm. Um, I come into the process um, at the script phase. I work closely with the director and the showrunner uh, to go through the script, what ideas they might have for music. Oftentimes in the script, there are already notes there, Mm -hmm. um, music cues that have been written into the story, which may be identified and may not. Um, So I fill in those gaps. If if, uh, the story has a character in a club, in a bar, uh, in their car, um, dancing, um, I fill in those gaps, and I fill in gaps other places. Um, where we identify a need for music. And so before the uh, project is even shot, I've already started to make notes about where I think music should be. Uh, and those choices are sometimes informed by the notes um, in the script themselves the director has, has made, cues. And then once um, the project is shot, then we come together again, we look at the cuts, and uh, by that time I've already started sort of stockpiling music choices for each area Mm. and then we run those choices under scene i do that um, privately and then we come together as a team and sort of uh pitch the best several ideas for each segment and then we decide on something that works yeah we also have to figure out how to pay for it too so that's clearance is a is a big part of music supervision oh wow so you are also sort of working to some extent on the business side of these things as well that's right right wow that's right and it i mean it sounds like you have to be the type of uh, person who you're like a curator, essentially. And 
you have to have a deep, deep knowledge of music to to be able to even think of the right cues, the right what song might fit for a certain scene or a certain character. Can you talk a little bit about just how you first became involved with radio and with just like being so immersed in music? Well, I think I'm a uh, music junkie from from way, way back. Um, just as a kid, I was just sort of obsessed with music. Uh, my father um, was heavily into music and uh, loved to drive. He's a great driver, loved to drive. Spent a little time overseas. And uh, so we would drive, you know, across the countryside. He had a really cool sports car. Mm. And he'd have me in the front. He gave me my first pair of shades and uh, sat me in the car as a little kid. And he just put on music. Uh, he didn't talk that much, um, except about the music. He had really interesting factoids. And so I fell in love uh, with music as a part of my, you know, experience growing up. I've got two things that I get really excited about buying, stilettos and, and music. <laughs> so I was the person that wanted to go to record stores when record stores were a thing. And that, for me, was uh, the highlight of my day, collecting music. And, um, you know, all the moments, you know, growing up in my, you know, childhood and early 20s, the hallmarks of those moments are are, are music identified. I always I, I identify some of those moments with music, so I was obsessed um, early on. I, I was surprised to get into radio. I had no idea I was going to end up you know, being a music programmer. Mm -hmm. I started hanging around a radio station because I thought that might be a way to get into commercial voiceover. And uh, I never did get into commercial voiceover, but I ended up being a DJ Mm -hmm. and sort of the rest uh, was history. But I've been amassing sort of a collection of music over the years from, gosh, cassettes to CDs to vinyl and uh, it's just my thing. I'm just really into music. It's just my thing. Vinyl's back too now. It's like a huge. It's. It seems like it's definitely resurging. And I've, absolutely, I've even seen cassettes. They're trying to make cassettes happen again. I don't know if that's going to work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, because cassettes are back, but they've got to. They've got to bring back those cassette players. Exactly. Too, so you can really. Yeah. Get yeah. In the boom boxes. <laughs> now, I mean, you said you. You can remember. You. You sort of mark certain periods of your life by certain music like when you were say 22 like sure. what what song or what like type of music was your thing back then that's a good question you know i got heavily into dance music and uh and i'll say like acid jazz mm. um, around the time that soul music started to be experimental um i fell in love with those groups mm. um brand new heavies influence uh, Jamiroquai incognito and uh, that that for me was sort of like love at first listen mm-hmm. and then um, house music Chicago house music mm-hmm. um, Ralph Rosario a little Lewis and the world Frankie Knuckles yeah um, so it was a it was a sort of a hodgepodge of things and then uh, you know uh, Mary J. Blige. Hey, yo, what's the 411, hon? What's the 411? I got it going on. Hey, yo, I got it going on. What's the 411? You know, hip hop. And then when I went to college, um, I went to Clark Atlanta. So I fell deeply into the Atlanta scene and all of that scene Outcast, Goody Mob, mm-hmm. Joy, 
um, for that matter, TLC, Usher. So it was pretty typical um, of the time, with the exception of really going out experimentally into the UK soul scene and, of course, acid jazz, the architect of that being Giles Peterson and all that he was doing on uh, Giant Step Records and Talking Loud. Mm. And so I, I was always going to the left a little bit, but at the same time really immersed in the culture of the time musically. Yes, yes. Uh, I love it. Uh, especially House, I've definitely gotten into a lot more in the last few years in discovering that. And I uh, I love it. Um, I mean, so radio is is sort of how you first got linked with Ava DuVernay, right? Um, right. So right. can you talk a little bit about that and how that came to be? I was doing an afternoon show on uh, 90.7 KPFK here in, in L.A. I was uh, actually auditioning um, for a world show on at two o'clock in the afternoon, I had a friend that already worked there um, that had had a dance music uh, show, and she said, "You know, come in, try this thing out. Do you know anything about world music?" And I did, and uh, I came in, and it was an afternoon show, and that happened to be the show uh, that Ava heard, and then she reached out to me and uh, said she was in post um, on a project, and would I be interested in music supervising it? And I said yes. And that project was Middle of Nowhere. Yes, I love and Middle so of Nowhere. It was a big deal um, because it was, if you've seen it, it's a it's a beautifully crafted story and uh, very uh, L.A. focused, L.A. centric. Mm-hmm. And uh, she did an amazing job with that. And uh, and that was the thing that sort of catapulted uh, certainly uh, my career as a music supervisor and, and opened the doors for, for a lot of us that were working with her at the time. Yeah, I mean, what I love about that story is that, you know, so often, especially if you're a woman or a person of color, well, actually, if you're a woman or a person of color, it's it's very hard to, like, break into that sort of industry without having any sort of prior experience. It's like you, you're expected to have, like, all your duck in, ducks in a row before you finally get the big break, like get, get a chance to work and be like a supervisor on a film. Um, whereas, you know, white men, maybe not. They don't always get that. They don't, they don't have to have that experience. And so what I like about your story is the fact that like Ava took a chance on you and you took a chance, you allowed yourself in a way because, I don't know, did you feel as though even though you didn't have experience, were you worried about taking the gig or did you just say, I'm, I'm going to go for it? Uh, I think... Uh, my feeling around that time was absolutely informed by being naive to the process. Mm. Um, since I really didn't know a lot about music supervision, I saw it as um, an extension of what I did on the radio. I mm. thought this is just a longer show. You're just preparing for uh, a much longer show. So my preparation was was the same. You know, deep digging in the archives and the crates, um, you know, chasing indie artists, which is sort of my thing. And uh, and so I don't think I had a moment to think, oh, this is it. I just thought this is cool. So I get to I get to pull music um, mm-hmm. for a film, something I never had done before. But to me, it was just a, an opportunity to extend um, this really deep relationship that I had with music. And so I was excited from that vantage point because I thought any opportunity to search for music is a great opportunity for me because that that really is uh, what I love to do. It gives me so much joy. So searching for um, music to match those moments. And if you've seen Middle of Nowhere, you know how gorgeously um, it's shot. That's Bradford Young mm-hmm. and, uh, and directed and so and the dialogue. So it was a thrill. It was thrilling. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned that one of your things is, is looking for out for indie artists. And that's what I've noticed across all the work you've done on the screen is like for the most part, it's not the mainstream 
the sound cues that you would expect. I mean, a little bit more in Selma, but like Selma's a little different. But like, what what is it about indie artists? Like, do you see it as your duty in a way to support them and and get their work out there as, as much as possible? Absolutely. Um, I feel uh, my my friend calls the underground the wonderground because that's where all the gold is. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm excited um, to search for those artists, but I also do feel um, very protective of that community uh, because it, I think it takes a lot to be an artist, a creative on on uh, on every level, but certainly as a performing artist and to have the opportunity to be recognized for something that you've done and, um, you know, maybe being in a position to be plucked you know, from relative obscurity. Um, I feel like that's what what's happened to me in my career, and I feel a tremendous uh, debt to music because I, I, I don't think it's the Morgan Rhodes show. I think I'm only as good of a music supervisor as the music is, and the music has been very good to me, and I think there is a lot of gold in the underground. So I do feel, um, you know, compelled to give back in that way in as much as I can. And outside of that, I think the music that's coming out of the underground is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the more you dig, um, the more you find, certainly as it relates to black music, but I like indie music across all genres. Mm. So for me, it give, nothing gives me more joy than to you know, find an artist on SoundCloud or on Bandcamp or on a blog or in a record store, you know, um, or just in a conversation or, you know, shazamming something and being like, wow. Um, so that that for me is is one of the, the thrills of being a music supervisor is the process. And as I do feel I, I um, as I do feel very grateful to have discovered these artists, I do feel a responsibility to to share to share that love and to share that discovery um, in every place that I can. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a bit about Selma? Uh, just because that was a that was a huge movie when it came out. Uh, it was you collaborating again with Ava, and it, I guess one scene in particular that really struck me was the scene on the Edmund Pettus Bridge the first time the the protesters are walking. And you use the song Masters of War. I think it was originally a Bob Dylan song. I think he wrote it, but it was performed uh, in the film by Odetta. Now you masters of war You that build all other guns Can you talk a little bit about that song choice, that version of the song choice, and and how did you and Ava coordinate that moment? She let me have uh, free reign with a lot of the moments in Selma. It was important to me uh, to be true to the time. The directions at the beginning of Selma were, I want to use B-sides, I think was what she said to me, mm-hmm. from 1965. Yeah. And uh, which was like, ding, 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 ding. If you say to me you want to use B-sides or you say you want to go, you know, uh, off the beaten path or, you know, you're into obscurity, you have just made my day. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. Um, I know that people were familiar with Odetta. Um, she was uh, obviously a prolific folk singer, um, very civil rights minded, and she had to be a part of that moment. Um, and I wanted black voices um, to handle those critical moments in civil rights history. So for me, it was really important to... Um, 
to use someone who had been central to the movement, who had been present in the movement. And I'm very woman-focused. And so I wanted a woman's voice there. And so that was my choice. Mm. I wanted I wanted Odetta's voice. Um, how Ava, you know, uh, cut it, I think was was perfect. Uh, she faded into that thing and faded out of that thing. So it almost was like a meditation. And that's what I liked about the song there, that it was almost like a meditation. I didn't think that it overpowered the moment. I think I thought that it underscored the moment uh, perfectly. And that's that's credit to, to, to Ava's direction. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely get that sense, especially that meditation is very clear on David Oyelowo's face as Martin Luther King when he's like, contemplating and that's the moment for for listeners if they haven't seen it in a while or or haven't seen it that's the moment like i mentioned earlier they go they walk across the bridge for the first time but then mlk decides after pondering for a few moments he's like actually no and he turns back around so yeah that meditation definitely comes through in that moment and and just overall like the the idea of the b-sides like that's something I also notice with the film is that you, I usually with these types of historical uh, biopics set during the civil rights movement, you get like all the greatest hits of the songs you would expect, whether it's, I don't know, Aretha Franklin or, or Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. But like it was all B-sides and I really appreciated that about it. Were there any songs during like while you were working on Selma that you just had never heard of before while you were looking through them and like you just discovered new songs that you were not aware of before um martha bass uh walk with me which was the song that played uh on bloody sunday walk with me I was familiar with Walk With Me. Um, I grew up in the church, so I've heard that song, you know, all my life in different places, um, usually before prayer or after prayer. I had never heard that version um, of the song, which I thought was really funky and had a great guitar riff. And uh, Martha Bass um, was the mother of Fontella Bass that had that big song in the 60s, Rescue Me. And thought was a Aretha Franklin song until I learned it was not Aretha Franklin singing that song. I don't know if that's no, like common. <laughs> Fontella Bass. Yeah. Fontella Bass. Yeah. And uh, Martha Bass was her mother. Mm. This album featured an, a number of artists covering, um, you know, spiritual songs. I've said this before, but I wanted a song that belonged to generations of freedom fighters. And so Walk With Me had some resonance. I had never heard it before I started working on Selma. It was one of the hardest um, scenes to to, to cue because it was so important the the historical um, importance of the scene and I actually found that song on YouTube mm. and uh, and it was sort of it just gave me chills the moment that I that I heard it I, I started crying mm. um, because I I knew that that was the one and so to see to see it the first time I saw it in that scene it was like my God and so that was a that was a discovery but there were a lot of those but that's the one that always uh you know lingers in my mind mm-hmm. because of the way that I found it, how hard it was to find that song, to get to that song. Sorry, which scene was that again that it wound up uh, underscoring? That's Bloody Sunday. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. yes. Bloody Sunday. Yeah. Wow. And so, uh, you know, it was a, uh, my, my mother, you know, grew up around that time. And it was important to me um, if, I, if I was going to be the voice of a pivotal moment 
in civil rights history to do the right thing sonically. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I hope that I did. I hope I hope that that scene, um, you know, resonated with people in the same way that it did with me. Mm-hmm. I would actually love to move on to Queen Sugar, which is like a show I've, I've kind of currently obsessed with. And you worked on the first season. Are you also working on the second season, by the way? I'm not, oh, okay. but I had a, a wonderful um, experience with the first first season. Yeah, loved uh, loved the Bordelons, mm-hmm. and uh, loved loved uh, looking at those gorgeous views of Louisiana, and uh, really proud of the work. Yeah, uh, from the first season. Yeah, I mean, so I was I was scouring through some interviews that Ava did uh, about Queen Sugar, and one of the things she talked about was how whenever she's envisioning a scene that she's going to direct or um, an episode or a film she's working on, any project. She talks about choosing the first and last shots of it, um, imagining those sort of first. And I don't know if that trickled down into the way you thought about it, but I was wondering if you could sort of break down. So the first scene of the first episode, uh, you use the song Faithful by Michelle, I'm going to pronounce her. Michelle Ndegio Cello. Yes, yes. Um, and you use that in the opening scene uh, when we get the shot of Nova waking up in bed. And then you close it out with U2. Um, that last episode or that first episode is closed out with U2's Drowning Man. And we see the montage of Mika and Charlie, the son and mother, leaving their house surrounded by paparazzi. And we also see shots of like... Uh, the father, the the father patriarch of the Bordelon family, he's in the hospital and the family's coming together. So we have all these images in these two songs. Can you talk just a little bit about those first and last shots of the episode and how you curated those songs specifically for those moments? Actually, those two songs, those bookends were chosen by uh, by Ava. Ah. Um, Ava chose Faithful and Ava's a U2 fan a longtime U2 fan. Mm. Uh, so she chose she chose the last song. Oh, wow. Um, the first song that I chose for Queen Sugar was Oysters, oh. which is also a Michelle and Deggio cello song, before I even knew Michelle was going to be associated with it. Um, I put together a sort of like a 10-song playlist for the writer's room um, as they were starting to think about episodic, um, you know, tenants. And... That was one of the first songs that I fell in love with. And I had no clue that Michelle was going to end up being the composer. Oh, right. Because she also wrote the theme song for the show. Yeah, she did the theme song for the she did. She's the composer, so she did the whole score. Mm. And Oysters plays when um, Ralph Angel um, brings his son to come see the father who's dying. So it's before the U2 song. Right. And that was the first song that I, that I thought about, and it just sort of moved from there. So when I found out that Michelle was going to be the composer, I was like, wow, mm. this is this is perfect. What made you choose Oysters? That, that scene is just so heartbreaking. I know Ava's talked about crying when when watching that scene like what what about that song in particular felt right for that moment i'm attracted to things that carry emotional weight um but do it in a very minimalist uh minimalistic way you know um walk softly and carry a big stick Mm -hmm. is how i tend to come to something sonically to me it was heavy the things that she was saying um, that weren't really specifically about death, but they were about loss. Mm-hmm. And um, and I just loved her her voice. I mean, if you're familiar with her catalog, um, she embodies a lot of styles, rock and, and soul and jazz and funk. And this was so stripped down and acoustic. 
And the moment was powerful, you know, in and of itself. You've got three generations of Bordelons and sort of the passing of the torch, um, you know, one generation slipping away and sort of the recognition that this is a powerful time, that these are your last fleeting moments with the, with the patriarch of the family. And so that moment, you know, death in, in and of itself is so powerful. And sometimes when we see it in films and we see it in, in uh, television, the song tells us how to feel. You know, it gives us the words, you know, I'll be missing you or whatever. Um, and I didn't want to do, do anything like that. Mm-hmm. I, I, wanted, I wanted to to put you in the mindset of transition and of loss without having to tell you how to feel about that. Mm. And it was a quiet moment. You know, it's in the hospital. There are tears. Um, there are, you know, men being vulnerable. And so I didn't want to um, overpower the scene with my choice. And, uh, and, I, and I liked Oysters for that scene from day one. That was the first song that I chose, like I said. Mm. Yeah, I, I just got chills. I, I rewatched the scene uh, just a couple days ago and was haunted by it. It's just such a moment. It is. And I cried, too, mm-hmm. um, seeing it the first time. It's just so, it's just, it's just powerful. It really is. Mm-hmm. To move on to, well, maybe not happier, but not quite as dramatic, you, you also worked on the Dear White People, the TV series, which I I was a fan of. Uh, I I didn't care for the movie much, but I, I really liked the TV show. Um, and the music choices were, I mean, there was just so many different things to choose from. And I know that you, you just, you've discussed in the past that you actually created different playlists for each of the characters. Who was your favorite character to create a playlist for? And what were some of the songs that you chose for that? Well, when I came into the process, Justin Simeon, um, the creator of Dear White People, had made some preliminary playlists for all the characters, which I think is genius. Mm-hmm. It gave me a direction in which to go sonically. And all that we wanted to do, the composer and I, was to sort of you know, build upon the foundation that he had laid down. Um, each person had their own musical personality, which I thought was sexy. And so we just wanted to, you know, to build, build on that. Um, I love Sam's character. Um, she is a woman after my own heart because she's a radio DJ. Mm-hmm. And I liked that she had, you know, uh, a place, um, you know, to talk about issues and a real forum for her, for her, you know, activism, um, you know, she was sort of like, to me, um, half Amy Goodman and half um, Lynn Thigpen from The Warriors. Mm-hmm. She was able to talk about issues and not really worry about the FCC because, you know, we had some you know explicit lyrics and <laughs> in, <laughs> in some of her show and she didn't have to worry about that. So it was fun to be able to, you know, soundtrack her time. Um, on the air, we used um, Jay Dilla, F the Police. We used a song uh, by an indie artist named O.D. Hunt um, called, you know, I Can't Breathe. And she was speaking about, you know, um, Philando Castile and um, Sandra Bland. So I really wanted to underscore those moments with some power. So it was a lot of fun to, you know, sort of be um, to be a DJ for a DJ, if you want to put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Troy's character. Um I loved that uh, here's a guy that's sort of, uh, you know, big man on campus. Everyone loves Troy, trying to be uh, all things to all people. 
but I always felt like there was a, a side to him that he didn't allow people to see in those quiet moments. And I thought his music choices should be the same, um, that we might be surprised to know that this is a, this is a guy that's that likes 70s soul mm-hmm. um, and 60s soul. And so it was fun to create that part of him, the part of him that likes old soul groups. Um, I just uh, I had a good time with those kids. It was a uh, it was really cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it also sort of seems the opposite of at least that scene you did with oysters in Queen Sugar, where I mean, a lot of a lot of Dear White People is not subtle at all. <laughs> like it's very right. it is a satire and it's very straightforward. Was that something? It sounds like obviously you had fun and it was easy to do, but was that also something you had to like work against since you're you tend to not necessarily want to underscore in that way? Or was that just something that came natural to you considering the the subject or the project that you're working on? You know, there were so many nuances in Dear White People, and there were so many different narratives. You had the sexual tension between Sam and Reggie. Mm-hmm. You had the relationship between Sam and Gabe. You have the crush uh, between uh, Lionel and Troy. You have the backdrop of... Um, of, you know, drama happening happening on campus at Winchester University. And so the thing that was attractive about that was the variety of moments that I had to play with. Um, what was also attractive was that I'm, I was dealing with, you know, a story about millennials. Um, and what I find is that there's a lot of, I'm not the only one that digs deep for music. Mm-hmm. I think social media, you know, has let us know that people, uh, you know, are willing to dig into different sounds. They're into different sounds. Um, they go outside of the mainstream to find their music. And so I felt like I had free reign to dig and that it would be, you know, really appreciated. Um, there were serious moments there. Um, and I think it, it was an opportunity to, um, really go outside of the box, but to keep it indie. I mean, the, the soundtrack for Dear White People is almost completely indie. Yeah. Um, almost everything in there, um, is indie across all genres. So we experimented with pop and we experimented with rock and we experimented with dance and, um, Justin has good taste. So he had some picks in there too. Um, the Thelma Houston, Saturday night, Sunday morning scene mm. in the bar. But I got a chance to um, place a lot of my favorite artists and really, really dig deep. So it wasn't unfamiliar territory. Um, it was just a, a sort of a different project. And what song or artist are you just currently obsessed with right now? Huh. That's a great question and, <laughs> and tough. Um, I know. Because I'm generally obsessed with <laughs> about 30 about 30 artists right <laughs> right now so that's a tough tough question i am listening to every possible thing that you could think of like just across the board um i like a um a dance band called jeremy and I, it's all instrumental stuff but really cool so i've been listening to um to a lot of that um i love sunny cologne his music was featured in Dear White People, uh, Gabriel Garzon Montana, listening to him, um, been going, you know, 
you know, back some years listening to, to Deep Catalog. Um, I've been listening to a lot of old school Sissy Houston. Mm. Um, Sissy Houston had vocals, and I'm not sure. You know, you it, of course, obviously, we, we know and love Whitney Houston. But uh, Whitney Houston sounds a lot like uh, a young Sissy Houston. Sissy Houston was killing mm-hmm. and uh, sang background for Elvis Presley. So I've been listening to a lot of her uh, o- older older catalog. So I've been going back and forth with, my, with that thing. Nice. And do you have... This might also be a very difficult question, but do you have a favorite musical cue in a movie you haven't worked on? One that just really sticks out to you. It's like that just got you really it got you there, whether it's emotionally or like euphorically or dramatically, like any musical cue from a from a film that you just can really look to and say that that moment is something I love or gravitate towards. Um, one of my favorite musical moments, um, was on a show, a TV show called Six Feet Under. Mm. And it was the series finale. Mm. The song was Sia, uh, Breathe. I am small. The music supervisor uh, is a friend of mine named Thomas Golubich. I didn't know him then, but I loved that show. Um, and I just remember how that song carried us uh, through the end of the series to wrap it up from beginning to end and then take us onto the future to sort of not leave us hanging to tell us what happened afterwards. Because it was such an abrupt ending of the series that everyone was in love with. Mm-hmm. And Sia at the time... Um, was was sort of sort of known, but still independent. And uh, when I finally got a chance to meet Thomas, and we're friends now, um, he gave me some really sage advice as I was starting out as a music supervisor. He told me two things. The first thing he said was, "Listen to everything," and the second thing he said was, "Make sure that you make elegant choices. The goal is elegance." And I'll never forget that. And I'll never forget that moment because it was a, a surprising choice. Um, as I said, it, a, a sparse and minimalist delivery, but one that was so powerful. And so I, I aspire to those moments. I aspire to being able to carry um, a narrative without, you know, choking the life out of someone sonically. Mm. And, uh, and to be able to create um, those sort of memories that, that Thomas gave me. If I can do that, then I've done my job. And in the process... If I've been able to sort of um, bring independent artists and independent music to the forefront um, and pay back, I think, the, the tremendous debt I owe to this music, uh, then I think I've done my job. Hmm. For my final question, which is the question I ask all of my guests, when is the last time you saw yourself on screen, whether it was in a uh film or TV show, you saw a character or a moment or a scene or a movie that you felt as if you were represented on screen and not something you've yourself worked on. So you might have to leave out any Ava DuVernay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to say Insecure. Mm. Insecure uh, is a great show. It's very L.A. Uh, focused and centric. And I grew up in L.A. 
I know all those places. Um, I know all those locations. And, uh, and I just saw myself as, uh, you know, in, in Issa Rae's character and, and a black girl um, living and trying to flourish and thrive in, in, in Los Angeles, my city, which I adore. So that's when I saw myself. I was like, this is pretty dope. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she's pretty dope. And so good to see myself. Ah, yeah, we're here at Represents. We are huge fans of Insecure. <laughs> Absolutely. She's dope. Yes. Ray is dope. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Morgan. It was such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, girls, for, uh, you know, for, for having me, and I sure appreciate it. Oh, of course. Thank you. And scene. So you should be on the lookout for Morgan's upcoming projects, which include Dear White People Season 2, which comes out in the spring of 2018 on Netflix, and also her new podcast, Heat Rocks, with NPR's Oliver Wang, which debuts on October 3rd via Maximum Fun and Apple Podcasts. Represent is produced by the lovely and amazing Berlin Williams. Our excellent social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. And our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And if you're looking for more great podcasts to listen to, let me recommend Slate's Dear Prudence. It's hosted by the hilarious and insightful Maui Ortberg, who also runs the online advice column with the same name. Each week on the Dear Prudence podcast, Mallory and a guest tackle questions from real people seeking help with real problems, like how to end a toxic friendship, how to deal with manipulative in-laws, and how long should you wait before hooking up with someone else when you're stranded on a desert island? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Until next time.